This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get a financial fresh start by calling 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation or to find an office near you. A pretty common question from folks uh, getting into bankruptcy, I'm sure, is what happens then? Right. So once I'm done, once I've figured this all out and, and paid what I need to pay to feel okay about it all, uh, what, what do they do next? Yeah. How, do you, how, do you, how do you sort of start? Yeah, well, there is life after bankruptcy. That, right. That's the whole point. So, I know you yeah. say that. <laughs> oh, yeah, and I, and I believe it. And, you know, if a company goes into bankruptcy, yeah, usually it's the end, of the end of the story. But individuals, we have this incredible power to, you know, start again and again. So ideally, bankruptcy is a one-time thing in your life, uh, but you will emerge, and generally you'll emerge stronger than you were before. Okay. So let's spend a minute talking about, you know, if you're going through a bankruptcy, what does that actually mean? So you've signed the documents. What do you do next? Yeah. Right? So for the vast majority of people, bankruptcy is going to be less complicated, less expensive, and take less time than what they think. So most people think bankruptcy is going to take you six or seven years. Absolutely not true. So for the vast majority of people, about 80% of people that come to see us, if you're classified as low income, your bankruptcy is over in nine months. So less than a year, not six or seven years, nine months. So what happens? You sign the documents with the trustee on day one, um, and then you have a few duties that you have to perform. So in Instead of you paying your debts, instead of you being accountable to your creditors, having them harass you for payments or different things like that, you make a payment to the trustee each month. And again, if you're low income, that payment is $200 and that's it, regardless of the amount of debt. It could be $10,000 or it could be $110,000. The payment's the same. The important thing every month when you're in bankruptcy is it's meant to be a rehabilitation process. So you have to keep a budget. You have to show us each month what your income was and then tell us where you spent it. So I don't need proof of you know groceries or rent or so on and so forth. But I need the individual to make a diligent effort to show that they are tracking their expenses and their income and showing that they're living within their means. So you file for bankruptcy, you keep a budget for nine months, you make a monthly payment. Um, Another really important thing is you come for two counseling sessions. So again, we're really proud at Sands & Associates. We care about the entire person, the entire situation, and quite often, finance is one piece of a puzzle of things that the person is trying to solve. The counseling sessions help by really focusing on rebuilding your credit, giving you the tools you need for household budgeting, but then also understanding, are there some non-budgetary reasons of why you're in this situation? Is there some extra support, perhaps an addiction, something that you need some connection to resources? That's what we try to do to, again, make sure it's a one time in your life that you're restructuring things. And over the history of this show, we've talked to some of the folks that work within your company yeah. uh, who who do do that counseling work. So these people are very, very qualified. It's not like mm-hmm. uh, uh, Joe Blow sitting at his desk and saying, oh, well, you really need to stop gambling. You know, that'll yeah. help. Actually, no, there's there's a thoughtful 
kind person at the other on the other side of that desk is going to help you think about it in a different way and then support you in getting more support or more help yeah. uh, with that particular issue that if it becomes apparent that that's what it is. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the counselors, they're at least, you know, multiple years of experience, hundreds of hours, experience requirement, professional courses, accreditations, all of that stuff. So they all help you get, you get you through the bankruptcy. And the idea is you file for bankruptcy nine months later, ideally you get your discharge. And the discharge means that you're free of the bankruptcy, all the debt gets left behind. Well, what happens then? Let's talk yeah. about that. Yeah. And, and with that, would that, could that include, what do I do about my tax return? Because at that point, I wouldn't have a clue what to do. Yeah. So in tax... What happens with, with taxes in a bankruptcy is any tax debt that you owed before you filed the bankruptcy is going to be dealt with in the bankruptcy. So I have a lot of self-employed individuals, so sometimes realtors or tradespersons or things like that, who just get behind in government remittances and suddenly the revenue dries up and they end up owing the government a lot of money. If you go through a bankruptcy, what happens is we have to file taxes up until the day you file that bankruptcy to make sure any tax debt that you have is going to be included, it's going to be captured, it's not going to follow you in the future. So if you file the bankruptcy on June 30th, I'd be doing a tax return from January 1st until June 30th. It's called a pre-bankruptcy tax return. Okay. And then you file the bankruptcy and the rest of the year happens and goes on. You give me the information and I file the second half of the tax return. So while you're in bankruptcy, you've got basically two tax returns for a single year, which sounds a little bit complicated, but the trustee handles all of it. You just give us the information. We split the tax return up and we deal with any tax set up until the day you filed bankruptcy in order to give you that fresh start. If we didn't do that, if we just based it on, you know, December 31st or whatever, well, if you file in June, what about those six months? You might end up owing some money there. Okay. So after you've looked after my tax return for that period of time, what you know, how, what's my status within the tax department, especially if I've owed them money? Yeah, so once you're discharged, you are the same as every other Canadian who doesn't owe taxes. So you go back to filing your returns every year. Um, If you're going to get a refund, you'll get that refund without anything being netted off for past amounts owing to the government. So it gets you back to, you know, being the the perfect taxpayer that CRA always wants to see. So so we really counsel folks after your discharge, make sure you're filing on time every year. Make sure you're not delinquent. Make sure any debts you're going to stay on top of, just, you know, to try to keep them in that perfect category. Because CRA, like many places operates a risk-based approach. And if you're consistently making mistakes on your, your tax return or filing late or things like that, you're probably going to trigger them looking deeper or doing audits or things like that. So stay on the straight and narrow as much as you can, but a bankruptcy will get you right back to being you know perfect, pristine upon your discharge. Okay. So again, once that's done, uh, I think it's important to sort of note that this is where the counseling can help you. Mm-hmm. If, if I'm really bad at keeping books, proper yeah. books, for my little home-based business, or I'm a tradesperson, or whatever, um, then I'm going to get some support around that in terms of, I need to do this differently. Exactly. So one of the things we do is when we work with self-employed individuals, I had someone in my office last week uh, who was a construction framer, and we sat down, and he's never done his books monthly. So what happens is at the end of the year, he takes a shoebox of receipts to his uh, account, he brings the bank statement, yeah. says, here's what I pulled out every month, and you know, some years he's made money, some years he's lost money, but at the end of the day, there wasn't enough there to pay the taxes, which is why he was in to see me. So when we went through 
through it, I explain to him if he's in bankruptcy, every month, essentially, he's going to pay his taxes. So it's part of the, the process of keeping a budget every month is you have to essentially say, here's my revenue, here's my expenses, and you pay the government that month. So he said to me, that means I'm never going to have that horrible call from my accountant in January or February saying I owe the government 20 grand. I said, never, because yeah. every month you're not going to spend money you don't have. If it's off to the government, it's gone. You're not going to spend it. Or that awful feeling come whenever we're supposed to start doing our taxes so we may meet the deadline. Like, yeah. oh, I've got to go through that shoebox now. Yeah, doing a little bit at a time. It's a great habit. I have a lot of clients, even after they're discharged, they continue to do it every month just because they never want to be in that situation again. And the tax department doesn't look one way or the other any, any differently at me for doing it that way. No, if anything, they're a little bit happier. You know, you're paying theoretically before you have to, but yes. no, nothing negative at all. But uh, but at the same time, I'm up to date and yeah. Yeah, and if you overpay, well, that, you get a tax refund, then right? Then you get There's, money back. What's wrong with that? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So any restrictions on owning or acquiring assets? Zero. After your bankruptcy? Yeah. After your discharge, you know, if you were to win the lottery the next day, are you forced to go back and make good on any of those debts? No. You may choose to, and we've had people do that, but no, you're fully legally discharged, and that's why it's so important to get to that point. If you start a bankruptcy and you don't complete it for whatever reason, yeah, if you win the lottery or you start to accumulate assets, those might have to go to pay pay your debts. But if once you get your discharge, you are like every other Canadian around here or non-Canadian, whatever, you're like every other individual who can accumulate assets with no risk of them being taken from them. I like how we say, or or you win the lottery, like that's possible, yeah. <laughs> right? In 27 years of practice, we did have it once. Someone fi- filed right? for bankruptcy in the morning, in the afternoon, they won the lottery. Are you kidding yeah. me? Was it a big amount that they won? It was enough to pay off all the debts. And as soon as that happens, they're out of bankruptcy and they got a nice little check back. And wow. you know, obviously, if you knew that was going to happen, you wouldn't have filed. But right. the odds are what, one in 14 million? So yeah. it's, it's not a... Not a good plan, but it does happen. Right? <laughs> it's yeah. not a good plan. Yeah. Not one to bank on, that's for sure. Uh, what about the debts that the bankruptcy didn't cover? Yeah. Are there debts that the bankruptcy wouldn't cover? There's a short list. And, you know, generally they're the common sense ones that you would think people shouldn't be able to walk away from for the most part. So things like alimony or mm. things like child support. I don't think sure. there's anyone that would advocate that, you know, those debts should go away if you file for a bankruptcy. Right. Those are your responsibilities. Now, there are a couple others that are a little, you know, a little more gray, perhaps, Um you know, if you owe money for student loans and it's been less than seven years since you were a student and you filed a bankruptcy or a proposal, during the bankruptcy or the proposal, student loans has no greater rights than anyone else. They can't collect from you. They can't hold you accountable for anything. But at the end of the bankruptcy, they have the right to resume collection activities for whatever is not paid. Okay. So I have a lot of individuals I'll sit down with if student loans is one of the first debts they're concerned about. Right. I want them to get in touch with student loans and figure out what's the last study date they have on file. You know, if it's six and a half years from now or six and a half years ago, we would not be doing the right thing to file a bankruptcy or a proposal now. We should wait six months to make sure that that debt would actually get discharged. I see. Now, if it was two years ago and, you know, you've got a bunch of other things, you're being threatened with being, you know, wages taken or assets seized, you may have no other option. You may still need the relief of a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. You just need to realize that after your discharge, income tax is gone, credit cards are gone, lines of credit are gone, but a student loan less than seven years old would not be gone. Oh, that's interesting, hey? Yeah. Wow. How did they get that little special 
thing. Yeah, it's funny when you actually read that section of the law because it says, you know, it's alimony, it's maintenance, it's money owing for things stolen, it's theft, it's dishonesty, and then it's student loans. So wow. so it's it's a real carve out. And, you know, we don't hold, you know, we don't say that you can't get discharged from income tax, even though that's money owing to the government. So yeah. to me, student loans aren't that different. Do I think you should be able to graduate and go bankrupt the next day? No, but seven years is a long time for a lot of folks. Well, it is. And it's not as if uh, the your uh, professors or your instructors didn't get pay you know like everybody yeah. got looked at well that's interesting hmm. yeah. that's worth another discussion some oh point. indeed we'll talk more at student loans yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. darn student loans so another big concern for folks is are am i ever going to be able to get credit again yeah, my answer to that is you'll get probably more credit than you reasonably need. And the question is going to be, or the challenge is going to be using it responsibly. Mm. So what happens if it's a first-time bankruptcy is you can be discharged in as little as nine months, and the bankruptcy is going to last on your credit report for six years after your discharge. So it doesn't mean you're not you're untouchable completely, but it means if someone pulls a credit report... They're going to see you filed a bankruptcy if it's been six years since your discharge. What we see is if people take the right steps, you know, basic things like starting to get a secured credit card, making sure they pay all their bills on time, including their cell phone bill, which is really important. Yes. If they take all the right steps, usually it's within two or three years. They're now credit worthy again. They're now getting offers of credit cards with more limits than they need if they were going for a mortgage. As long as they got the down payment, even if a bankruptcy is going to show on the record, as long as it's been two or three years of solid credit rebuilding, they should still be okay. And can you just give me the definition for a secured credit card again, what that means? So that just means a card where you put down a deposit. So if it's a $1,000 card, you might put down a $1,200 deposit and then the cardholder has no risk. So they will give that to you when you're rebuilding your credit. Got it. Okay, great. For more information on any of the things that we've talked about, check out the website. It's nice and easy, sands-trustee.com or better yet, give them a call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation to see if any of this information, if you can use this or if it fits your situation or to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. I'm Elaine Scollin. I had to laugh when I saw the title of this segment, Quick Sands Financial Tips. And I thought, no, not quick sand, but quick and easy financial tips. That's what this is all about. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it's a bit of a guide. That's what we're giving you to maximum financial success, uh, like little changes you can make to your habits. And, and as we've talked about before, little changes can add up to something big at the end of the year or at the end of the month, or at the end of the week, depending on what kind of changes you're making. Mm So this one's all about uh, the financial uh, counseling sessions that are a serious integral part of uh, helping folks go through a uh, consumer proposal or bankruptcy process. Let's talk about some of the tips that you can share uh, with folks when when they're thinking about this. Yeah, so it's a surprise to some clients when they come to see us that it's not as simple as, hey, we just scrub off off all the debt, you know, send you on your merry way, and that's that. Um, As you said, Elaine, the counseling is just an interesting part of what we provide to our clients to try to help them understand what got them to the situation, what they can do to get through it, and how the future is going to be different if they implement some different behaviors. So a few years ago, we came up with this idea of a series of quicksands tips. And, you know, we did a 60-second uh, web video series that was very well received. So on a couple of our segments, we're going to talk about these specific tips and what was well received about them. So the first one, this one probably got the most traction out of all of the tips that we've done. And I think it's because it's very concrete. It tells people, here's some good guidelines to really set yourself up well. And this is the idea of 
of a personalized budget. So if your goal is to be debt-free, if your goal is just to know where your money is going to go each month or just to, you know, to assess yourself versus others or versus best practices, it's good to have a bit of a starting point to, you know, what should a budget look like? What are mm-hmm. some good categories and good percentages that are out there? Um, and the ones to start with here on a percentage basis. So if you're sitting down with a budget, um, your housing costs, typically about 35% of your after-tax take-home pay is what you should be guiding for or aiming for if, if you're uh, making a budget together. Okay. Now, this can be a challenge in Vancouver. You know, Absolutely. five years ago, I was saying, okay, about 30% housing. And now we're saying, well, 35% is is still you know reasonable. I see people at 50% of their income is going to housing quite often in Vancouver and the lower mainland. Yeah. So if your housing is at 50%, you just need to know, well, what you can spend in other categories has to be lower than that because that's already out of whack. Right. So housing at 35% is important. Uh, transportation at 15%. So this would be a car payment, ICBC, public transport, car sharing, different things like that. So if you're spending more than 15% of your take-home income on transportation, best practices would say it's a little bit out of whack there and you may want to try to save on other parts of your budget. Uh, moving on from there, food and general living expenses. So that's estimated at about 30% of your expenses. Now, unfortunately, this is something that we just see go up every year. We hear a food inflation coming exactly. in 2020 as well. Yeah. Um, so 30%, yeah, it's a reasonable estimate, but can be very tough to meet that type of a guideline. And then the thing, the area that probably takes the biggest hit is, is savings at 10%, yeah, right? Exactly. So what we've noted down here is savings, a goal is 10%. And you know, any financial professional would say, hey, if you're investing, 10% of what you make for long-term growth, you're going to be fine. You're going to retire with lots of money in the bank and all that. But that's the first thing that people stop doing is they yeah. stop saving when there's just suddenly not enough money to go around. And is 10% a little unrealistic for folks? Well, it's a best practice. Yeah. Um, you know, some people might say 35% for housing is unrealistic, but if you're able to keep your housing at 35% and your food at 30, sure. then it's a good idea to plan, yeah, 10% of my savings before, 10% of my income before I spend it, um, it should be saved. Um, the last category here to add up to 100% is we have debt payments at 10%. Now, the ideal state for this is at zero, but if you are carrying a balance, if it's less than 10% of your at-home take, if your take-home pay, it's probably reasonable you can deal with it, but it's when your debt payments start to to exceed 10% of your take-home pay, that's when you really find yourself squeezed and that's when people really start to subsidize using credit to pay their living expenses and things can get completely out of whack. So we wanted to give some good guidelines here. They don't fit everybody, but for starting off with a personalized budget, it's good to know, are you above, below, or in line with these guidelines? Is there a time period that you should look at to check in on the budget and see if you're making it or meeting it in any way? You know, I would start at first almost checking in daily. So for the first couple months that you're doing your budget, you know, make sure you're updating it regularly, make sure all your expenses are getting categorized on a reasonable basis. Um, after there, I think it can be, you know, every month you sit down, you get all your statements in, you allocate a few things over. And then what's really important is you examine and you understand where did you fall short? Where did you succeed? And what are your lessons for the next month? Okay. Now, can we move on to the next one that's highlighted? Certainly. Because I, I, I can just imagine you doing this. Mm-hmm as an experiment to see. Ride with cash. Uh-huh. I can see you doing that. Well, and I do. <laughs> so, I yeah. No, what we mean by ride with cash is just the physical pain of, of you know, uh, parting with, whether it's the brown bill, the blue bill, the red, whatever color it is, it's totally different than just putting down the card for another faceless, nameless t- transaction. It's mm-hmm. just tap and beep and you're done. There's something visceral. There's something emotional about when you're carrying cash. So yes, cashless conven- convenience um, is nice 
case. But there's definitely um, a lot to be said for carrying the cash, for spending it, for not going over budget. If you're only going to you know, bring what you can afford to spend for the night, you're not going to go over budget at the end of the night by putting down a card uh, or taking out extra money at the bank machine. So but, encourage people to ride with cash. And it sort of falls into the next part of this is because we're talking about ways uh, for folks trying to cut costs with their budget, mm-hmm. doing only having a certain amount of money, hard, cold cash in your hand, it would certainly help you keep within that. Yeah. So what, it, what couples can do, and I love to get these reports back from some of my clients, um, is to say, okay, at the start of the week, couples are going to withdraw you know, his money and her money, which is what we've allocated for our budgets, and do it all in cash. Leave the cards at home for that entire week. And then at the end of the week, decide what have we learned about this? Was it easy? Was it hard? Uh, were there some times where we know we would have overspent if we had the cards with us, but we didn't, so we couldn't. So it can be a great experiment to, to provide. So what about fixed costs that people are forced to look at or, or have in their life on a regular basis? Yeah, so the point there is to really understand what is fixed and what's not fixed. So a bunch of your costs, you know, you're not going to be able to do a whole lot with because there's, it's just so much so difficult to change them. So and what would those be? Well, you know, rent, for example, you can't really do much to deal with your no rent. No negotiating. Well, especially in Vancouver, the vacancy is, you know, close to 1%. Yeah, you can try to negotiate. They'll go to the next person down the line. Or if you have to leave your apartment, odds of you finding something less expensive, you know, can be a little bit low given where things are going these days. Right. Um, but you do want to take a look at where you could save some money. So things that might seem fixed to you, but aren't, um, you know, something like your cell phone. Um, you might think, oh, gee, I've got a monthly plan that doesn't change. You should give them a call and speak to customer retention and see what can happen. You might be able to get a whole lot better deal than what you're getting right now. Or staying within the budget for the cell phone too. Like, mm-hmm. so you're not having overcharges because that can... That can be worth a whole month's worth. Oh, exactly. If you if you roam down to the states and you didn't you know get the right package on it, yeah, you can definitely spend a whole lot there. Um, you know, another is a cable package. So don't accept that you know you got to be spending a hundred to two hundred dollars per month for your basic package. There's probably some great promotions you can get if you give a, if you give a phone call and say, hey, I want to be a customer here, but I need some help to bring down some of my costs. Now I know we're sort of going down a bit farther here in terms of what we're going to talk about in this segment, but I think that needs versus wants kind of came into what you had just said. You know, Mm -hmm. when you're looking at what your fixed costs are and what there aren't, then that's where you'd have that discussion in your head or with someone else. Yeah, so many things come down to, you know, do I actually need this or is this just something that I want? And, you know, for a lot of people, this can be a really difficult um, type of of decision to make, especially within the moment. So the advice to hear is if you're not sure if something is a need or if it's a want, what you need to do, sorry to use the the word again, uh, is to surf the urge. Mm -hmm. So what you need to say is, okay, I think I need this. I'm pretty sure I really need it. I'm just going to wait. I'm going to give it, you know, if it's an online shopping thing, I'm going to give it about an hour or so. I'm going to come back to this. If it's a major purchase, I'm going to give it a couple of days or so. If it still feels like you really need it, well, maybe you actually do need it. But what you'll find is a lot of wants. Um, we are we get into an emotional cycle and it just starts to build on one another, but it's not actually a want. It's not something that we really need to purchase. Yeah, no, it's a really good point because um, I just had a, a friend, friends of ours did that. They wanted to buy a specific automobile and they were excited about it and and jazzed about Mm -hmm. it. They'd done all the research and they were all ready to jump in. And then they thought, you know what? I think we'll wait on this. And? It's it's a big it's yep. a big expenditure, and maybe not the maybe the technology isn't quite there yet for them to jump in. So, listen, if any of this resonates with you, and you want to take a stab at either creating budget or looking after those debts, one 30 or go online and visit the Sands online sands trustee.com to book your confidential free debt consultation. 
You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. I'm Elaine Scollin. On the line with us right now is Nels Anderson. He's a game designer, uh, one of many living in Vancouver. Uh, he recently founded his own studio. It's called Caledonia. Uh, before that, he helped create the games Firewatch and Mark of the Ninja, which you may know. Uh, he moved to Vancouver in 2005 from Wyoming, which is kind of cool. Welcome, Nels. So glad you could join us. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. So we're talking about uh, the title of this segment is Millennials Feeling the Pinch. And I think it's re- it, it's a really important topic because uh, you represent a whole group of young people who I'll call young people uh, living in Vancouver. Sure. I know, but right, you're like you're younger than me, so that's how come you get that <laughs> you get that title. Um, but who are doing incredibly well, two income family, children, all of that, but living in one of the most expensive cities in the country, depending on where you are, um, it's so interesting. And that's why I want to start with giving us a bit of a snapshot to your current situation. Yeah. So um, my wife and I have been married since 2009, um, just a little bit over a year ago. We had our first child, uh, the boy The boy is uh, 18 months old. Um, we live uh, in, in downtown in the West End. That's where we lived for like the last 10 years since we started living together. Okay. Um, yeah, obviously, we, <laughs> there is no way we could own where we live. Right. Uh, so we, we just rent an apartment that's mm-hmm. ba- barely big enough for us and uh, had a baby and a dog. So, Nels, would you mind sharing, you know, just some of the literally dollars and cents is, is the, the name of the show here. So the apartment that you've got, what, what's the rent for something like that? Yeah, the, um, the two-bedroom apartment, so the rent is 2500 a month, which, gasps, sounds so expensive, is actually less than the average yeah. two-bedroom, like, in, in change. Um, and it's definitely the kind of, like, we've been here, we, we moved in here specifically uh, to, you know, have an extra room for a baby to be in. Right. <laughs> um, and so we're, you know, we're not constantly, but... At least there's some background radiation in our heads of, like, if we were, you know, told to leave the apartment because the owners sold it to somebody else and they're going to move in here, um, we don't know what we do. Because finding another two-bedroom place that we could afford <laughs> anywhere near where either of us work uh, would be quite challenging, See, and, and that's the key, right? Because so many people, I mean, that's the, the, the good news and bad news about Vancouver, that you can live right in the heart of the city and work right in the heart of the city. And that's, that's a lovely situation to be in, right? But if you're just there renting, uh, you're at the whim of a whole bunch of forces that you have no control over. Exactly. Um, and even, you know, like the like, while it's nice to go to, to live downtown, it's very accessible and all that kind of stuff. It's like, we wouldn't actually save that much money if we lived, you know, way out in Surrey or something, right? We'd just be trading off, like, we'd knock, may, you know, maybe four or $500 off our rent. Um, but that's immediately just getting put back into the cost of gas because we have to drive everywhere. And my wife's going to need a bus pass to get home, to, to get to and from work. So the amount of, like, actual savings we'd have, even if we tried to live cheaper, um, and still even be anywhere vaguely close to our work, is there isn't really that much of a gulf there. 
Got it. Now, now I don't have in front of me what your wife does, Nels. Uh, she actually also works in the game industry. Okay. <laughs> um, she didn't originally do that when we met, but she does it now. Uh, her focus is on um, like customer-facing support and community management and stuff like that. She works at a place called uh, Eastside Games. Okay. And I, uh, sort of a, a current situation, uh, there's large tech companies wanting to find new locations or expand locations of where they are already in North America. And Vancouver's way up on the list if they're not here already. And nine times out of 10, that's where they want to be. They want to be within the city of Vancouver. So if you want to work for those and they need folks like you and your wife, right? They're in desperate need of them. Uh, you all want to be in the city, Right. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, even somewhat related, that, that's absolutely true because you know you just want to be able to get to work. Um, but also, part of the challenge actually with the local you know, high tech industry, whatever we want to call it, is recruitment is actually extremely difficult because, mm. in general, the wages in Vancouver are a lot lower than they are in other places in Canada, and certainly lower than like anywhere in the U.S. Yeah. that has a big tech center. Um, and the cost of living is so much higher that, like, tr- trying to, you know, recruit and hire people because, like, the, the skill sets you offer, you need to kind of do, to do the stuff that we do are super specialized, right? So we're not pulling from a talent pool of, like, hundreds of thousands of people. It may be, like, there are a few hundred people who are currently available that know how to do this work. Right. Um, and essentially asking them, it's like, well, yeah, sure, you could take a different offer in Seattle and make, you know, twice as much money and have your cost of living – but you could also come here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's like, that's, that's not an offer that many people are going to leap at. Um, so it's both challenging for people to, to just, you know, who are already living here to, 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 to succeed and grow their own businesses. But it's also very challenging to, to recruit and bring in other people as well. Got it. So when did you first, so you've been in your place for 10 years now. Uh, when uh, did not you? The, not, not the same place. Not the we same moved, place. We moved, we moved in here two years ago. Okay. So, but within the downtown core? Yeah. Okay. So when did you start to know or feel the impact of the, of the housing market that we're all so well aware of here in the city and, and lower mainland? Yeah, well, it was actually when we were when we were evicted from one apartment because that wow. classic situation. The owner sold it, and then the new owners were like, "Oh uh, yeah, we're going to live here now. Uh, you got your three months. Get out." Yeah, um, of course. And then we would have had to leave like four days after Christmas. Yeah. Uh, so that was great. Um, and then when we were looking at new places, like for basically the exact same square footage, you know, the exact same location, the exact same amenities. It went. For, it added like six hundred dollars a month to our rent for like effectively the exact same apartment. Oh wow! Um, yeah, it was not great. And, and then when we moved over here because we had needed to get the extra bedroom for the baby, then it was like you know another is eight hundred dollars a month wow. on top of what we've been paying before. Um, and that's the situation that, like, it's it's definitely kind of this, this tar pit, right? Like, you know, my wife and I, we finished undergrad. We both have degrees. I actually have a master's degree as well. Um, like, we came out of school with relatively little debt, which you could do, you know, in the early 2000s. Yeah, back in the day. Anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we worked very hard to zero all that out, so we have no debt at this point at all in any flavor. But also, it's almost impossible for us to save, right? Like, at our current rate of savings, you know, we'll have enough money 
not to buy a place, enough money for a down payment, uh, sometime between when we're like 55 and 60. Wow, Nelson. And you're clearly, you know, meticulous. You've run all the numbers. You've figured out your commuting costs with a lot of people, which a lot of people don't do. Um, so on a reasonable saving rate, which I'm sure you, you, you made some reasonable assumptions, you'll be retired by the time you can get into the housing market pretty well. I don't know if people in my generation will ever retire. I suspect we will <laughs> yeah. just work until we die. You'll be you'll be um, traditional retirement age. Let's say that. Yeah. There you go. So let's yeah. go with that. Yeah. So that's like the yeah. trap, right? Where you know, even even fifteen twenty years ago, like you could pay your rent on a place and still be like socking enough other money away that then you can put a down payment on a place so that at least you're not paying rent into, into nothing. You were paying it into your own mortgage instead. But now that's, that's effectively impossible unless you just stay at home living with your parents for a decade or whatever. Right. Which, lo- which lots of people do, right? Sure. Lots of people do. That's so, a, it's a, well, I mean, my parents don't live here and Tila's parents are way out in the suburbs. And also it's like, Oh, Hey, we're going to be a family with a baby. But how about we also live in your basement? Exactly. That's <laughs> so, not the life I want for myself or our child. No, I get it. I get it. So, how Nels, how do you, um, I, I don't know if stressful is the right word to use, but it must be a thing that weighs on you um, all the time for you and your wife, weighs on you, that idea that you are kind of always on the edge. You never know quite what's around the corner, and yet you're well-educated, well-paid, or reasonably well-paid for the jobs that you do. Um, how do you deal with that kind of emotionally in terms of you know not, not becoming overwhelmingly depressed? Uh, you just make a, a fundamental decision to not think about it. <laughs> That's about it. Um, because, yeah, it's 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 both frustrating and, yeah, completely un- unstable where it's like things can happen to our housing situation, which is, you know, kind of, <laughs> the letter, in some ways literally and also metaphorically, the bedrock of our lives. And those those decisions are completely out of our hands, right? Like if our owner sells this place to some investor tomorrow, there's nothing. There's nothing at all we can do about it. Um, so you just kind of have to deal with it and just be like, "Well, we can't control that either way." So right. soldier on. There we go. I guess, yeah, I mean, there's, there's nothing you can do. It just sort of is not. <laughs> just sort of a bummer. Nels, what do you think um, people could do to address the issue here? What, what do you think, you know, from an individual who might be, you know, saying, "Well, this is a housing crisis and people aren't listening." What what could individuals be doing if they're listening? I mean, a lot of it is, you know, this is an issue that has been a long time in the making and was built by a lot of inaction by policymakers who have the ability to regulate this, right? Um, So there's there's not going to be any silver bullet to deal with this, but it's going to require a lot of concerted action on, you know, all three levels of government, you know, the municipality, the province, and and the federal government, of course. Um, And the thing is, like, you know, I... I guess I'm more politically engaged than most of my peers, but every single time I talk to my MLA or someone on council or something about this stuff, they're always like, wow, someone who's under 60 who <laughs> is actually talking to me about issues in their in my constituency. Like, you know, it's easy to be cynical about politics, right? Um, but the thing is, it's like often policy decisions get made by the people who clamor about them the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when everyone's over 60, is already sitting on a house they've paid for and is now worth, what, 10, 20, 30 times what they paid for it, like, those people aren't worried about their housing situation, not really. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So it's like people just stepping up and talking to their elected representatives and saying, look, this is a real actual problem that is affecting my family, our community, and our city, and something has to be done about this. And like, there are, like I said, there's not a single tool, but there are a lot of different ways to at least kind of sort of put the brakes on this, you know, more investment in cooperative housing, whether you're not owning where you live, but you do have stability. Um, Putting, like, like, we know that the reason why prices have gotten out of control, it's speculation, right? Like, exactly how, what what the percentage is on foreign versus domestic, that, I mean, that that's almost inconsequential, right? The problem is speculation. Like, people buy condos in Coal Harbor, leave them empty for nine months, and then sell them for $300,000 more than they bought for them. Like, they're just treating homes like boolean or or, or yeah. stock in a company that you can trade but this, it's not it's it's not just a commodity it's a place where people live nels i want to thank you so much for joining us get a financial fresh start easy to do 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. I'm Elaine Scollin. So, tips for 2020. Exciting Res- times. It is. Resolutions mm-hmm. and goals. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, you know, as I do prep for to do this show with you, went through them all, and there's some great suggestions. Oh, good. And, and I really liked how you how you approach them. Not, you know, you know take a look at, think about, mm-hmm. uh, because resolutions and goals can be really daunting for people. Yeah. And I think the first thing is, you know, to kind of be kind to yourself and forget about the past, right? So don't dwell on own this past year. You know, I I really screwed up this or that, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit to learn from it. But the whole point is, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do going forward in 2020? That's going to make things better off this year for you financially. Yeah. To reset, reset some, some habits. Yeah, exactly. And resetting. See, again, it's just your language is really good. It's Mm -hmm. not scary. We try. (laughs) You've got to do this right now. No, yeah. just kind of think about this. Okay, so let's go. Resolution, the, the the first thing you should think about. Yeah, so the first thing is, there's no surprise to anybody who listens to this show or who deals in finances generally is so much of our personal financial lives come down to just having a budget. So the key first resolution is either to refresh your budget or to start from scratch if you don't have one. All right, and how do you do? How do you do that? How do can, can you sort of go through what, how to start with a budget, or at least tracking what you're bringing in, or how do you start? Yeah, so a couple ways you can start with a budget. You know, the important thing is just to find a, a method that works for you. So if it's a simple spreadsheet, that's great. If you like Excel, if it's something written down, some people really like the tactile of writing the numbers down, adding it up each month. Or there's a bunch of apps that are out there. You know, some are very automated. Something like Mint.com. You know, it'll take a bunch of your spending on your debit cards, or your credit cards, categorize it and help you a little bit. But I'm not that much of a fan of that because I think it removes too much the step of the actual decisions of budgeting. If it's too automatic, then I don't find you get the insights okay, from there. So enough. whether it's electronic or offline, that's fine. Um, you know, one thing that people tend to really have trouble with um, is to look at those irregular expenses each month So what or each year. So I encourage people to take a look, go back over, you know, the last six or 12 months of your bank statements, your credit card bills, and try to pinpoint some of those irregular expenses, you know, whether it might 
might have been property taxes if you're a homeowner uh, or maybe a significant you know car repair we know the car is going to need service once or twice a year you can probably you know uh, budget for a few of those things but take a look at those irregular expenses and try to build those into your budget as well um, and I think just the act of doing it of actually preparing the budget of keeping track of it each month that's going to have huge ramifications huge positive things just by making you attend to the money that you're spending each month so if you do nothing else just keep a budget for this year or refresh the budget that you've already got focusing on making sure those irregular expenses are integrated so they don't come and hit you um, unexpectedly throughout the year I like the idea that you included taking a look at those small the small expenditures too mm-hmm. you know the five dollars here and the five dollars there if you're buying yourself a coffee every day yeah. or a latte or what, whatever it is um, and and Boy, it changes when you add it up over yeah. the year. Oh, even my wife and I, over the past you know, couple of months, we've been living above a Starbucks. And we looked at our Starbucks expenses. And you know what? We went out and we bought a coffee maker the other week. And we're like, we'll have this paid off in about three weeks or so. Yes. Uh, just as good. And within our living room as opposed to going downstairs. So yeah. so yeah, a bunch of those little things that you might not pay attention to. When you add them up on a monthly basis, it actually can be significant and can trigger a couple behavior changes. Yeah. And that would be hard if you lived above a coffee place <laughs> for sure. Yeah. yeah. Second resolution, you think that you think is important. Yeah, this is, you can say it a couple different ways, whether whether it's, you know, pay yourself first or make sure you're putting something away. The way I've called it here is have a personal savings priority. And that word priority is really important because there's so much science that's out there. If you leave it until the last thing that you do is to put money aside from savings, you know what? You're going to find the money's not there. It's not there this month. The next month, something comes up and two or three months from now, there's always something that comes up at the last moment that makes it very difficult for someone to save. So what you need to do is to make it a priority before you've even considered how the other money is going to get spent, what's your personal savings priority? And a couple things that you'd want to knock off, you know, first off is to start to save for an emergency. Um, There's great, great um, feeling that if you have a three to six month emergency fund, generally that can get you through a whole lot of tough times. You know, if you've got a a job loss or income interruption or different things like that, having that emergency fund can make all the difference in bridging you from a tough situation. But just about every client that I see, they don't have the emergency fund. As soon as some shock to the system happens, they can't withstand anything like that. Um, So an emergency fund is a big thing. Uh, If you've already got an emergency fund, well, why don't you start to save for the holiday that maybe you're planning on taking? And in the past, if you've put that on credit cards or, you know, just tried to save madly up until you're departing, that can be a lot of stress. It's a whole lot nicer to take a vacation if you've made it a savings priority, you've put things away every month, and then when you go away, you've got that money saved already. Fair enough. What's the third uh, tip for financial resolutions and habits that you want to cover in this one? Well, this one we called it hit the ground running. And, you know, to me, it's to operate your finances with a sense of purpose for 2020. So it's not just aim to survive, you know, aim to thrive. What are you going to achieve this year that's really going to help your finances turn around? And where I started off on the top, let's not dwell on the past. And that's true. But let's learn, try to learn some lessons from the past year. So what worked well for you last year? What goals did you successfully accomplished. And, you know, sometimes people say, well, I accomplished nothing, but hey, you know, did you pay your bills on time? Even if it was just the minimums, um, you know, did you not get taken to court for your bills? You know, there's a bunch of things that we do. We don't give ourselves any credit for, uh, but perhaps there's a few things that you can be happy about, but then also take an honest look 
at were there some things where you fell short? You know, was keeping paperwork a real obstacle for you this year? Did you pay a couple of bills that just a few days late and you hit some big interest charges? And if you were more organized, you wouldn't have had to pay those interest charges. So try to learn what you can um, from looking at what happened in 2019. Um, and then also start thinking about tax time. And that's true. You know, we're not done 2019, but you better be ready for taxes to be filed shortly. Um, you need to understand, you know, are you going to owe money when you file? Or are you going to have some tax refunds coming back to you and start to plan for those funds either being required from you or funds coming back to you and what you're going to do about those. So if you could say one thing or a couple of things of to help people figure out a goal for the, for the uh, next year, what would they be? Well, I think a couple of goals that people would have, you know, the number one goal that I work with people on is to become debt free. So, you know, if that's your goal in 2020, I think that's one of the best goals somebody can have. Um, you know, if that's something that just seems so far out of reach to you, you know, you've got a big student loan or a big mortgage and while well, debt-free is not going to be possible for you, well, at least feel as though you're managing your debt right. So, you know, a goal for 2020 might be, hey, I'm not going to pay any credit card interest this year. I'm going to make sure all my bills are paid on time. If I use a card, I'm going to pay it off each month. Um, but if you're someone that's dealing with a ton of debt, you know, this could be the time for you to sit down, start to considered, you need to start working with a professional to deal with your debt situation. Um, you know, a bankruptcy that starts in 2020 can often finish in 2020. So this could be a year of someone going from a very hopeless situation to being completely debt-free and moving forward owing nobody anything. Now, is that a case of just writing, starting to write all those things down, those the, the constant uh, places where you're paying money or sort of your debt picture? I think that's where it starts, Elaine. You know, so much of of our modern life now, it's just so easy to pay everything with a tap. Um, you know, we very rarely cut carry cash, and so many things just happen automatically each month, whether it's our Netflix subscription or Spotify or, or different things. Right. So it just becomes too easy to have money like sand going through your fingers. So I think the first thing before you get on on top of your debt problem is, is just to figure out where does the money go each month. So as we talked about refreshing or or starting a budget just from scratch, they're just starting to really track those important things. Um, I like the reminder about your credit card statement too for folks to remember. Yeah, so we, we talk a bunch about that. There's a great disclosure. You know, If you're wondering where you start and you need some motivation, I would say sit down and look at your credit card bill if you're carrying any sort of a balance. And sometimes some credit card companies have it right on the front page, something you have to dig in a little bit, but you'll find it will tell you how long it's going to take you to get out of debt if all you do is make the minimum payments each month. And you know there are some numbers like you know $6,000 of debt can be on the 40-year payment plan, 4-0 payment plan. It's ridiculous insane. Um, so you definitely want to sit down and look at what's the time you're going to be if you just keep doing what you're doing of just paying minimums. And is there any hope when it comes to credit cards and interest rates that you pay? I mean, can you do anything about that? Yeah, there's a bunch of things that you can do. Now, starting at kind of the easier to the more severe, you know, you can try to switch to a lower interest rate. You know, you can consider a low rate card. A lot of banks will offer those. You just have to ask for them. Um, you could try to simplify a bunch of your debts by consolidating them together. So by trying to combine a bunch of cards at a high interest to a lower rate, maybe it's a consolidation loan, or maybe mm-hmm. it's just a card you can just put everything on together. Um, and if those things aren't possible, or if you've tried them and they're not solving the problem, well, a consumer proposal is a great outcome to get you back to owing nobody anything, reduce and eliminate all of the interest, um, and get the debt down to what you can afford to repay in 2020. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scull, and along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, who are experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services, Services we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for more information.
The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.